Hi, everybody. Welcome to Unrestricted, the podcast that interviews noted public figures that have now returned to a more private life. My name is Steve Savitsky, president of B'nai Tzion Foundation, former president and chairman of many Jewish organizations. The people you're about to meet have great wisdom and experience. They were all leaders in the Jewish world and have much to share, unrestricted, with our listening audience. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Unrestricted. And today, I really, I mean, I say it always, but today, I mean, it's just incredible for me to have Malcolm Holmline on the show. Uh, Malcolm, of course, as you know, uh, was the founding executive director of the Greater New York Conference on Soviet Jury, founding director of the Jewish Community Relations Council for many, many years. And then in 1986, became elected the executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of major Jewish organizations and an organization I'm proud to be a part of for many years. So, Malcolm, welcome. Thank you for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. It's good to be with you. Okay, great. So I I didn't realize that you were the founding director of those two organizations. In other words, it didn't exist before you came? I came to New York from Philadelphia in 1971 to start the conference, the New York Conference on Soviet Jury and organize the big demonstrations. And uh, then when we formed the JCRC in 1976, when it was formed, I was the first executive and then uh, came to the conference in 86, as you said. Wow, that's really, it's really amazing. I didn't, all the years I know you, I didn't realize that. But, you know, I was thinking about something when I was, when I was reading about the Soviet jury, I was thinking about, isn't it amazing that, like, you, you started something and you actually saw it through and we actually won. And I was thinking about today, like today's generation, you know, okay, we're older, but so we saw things that won. We saw Soviet Jury. We went out, we demonstrated, we did what we had to do, and actually it worked. And we saw victories in 1948, 1967. But today, when was the last time Israel really had a military victory? It always ends in a ceasefire. Or when was the last time that an organization really had a, a mission and they accomplished the mission. Uh, maybe you could elucidate us on that. It's actually a very fundamental point, and uh, something I do uh, discuss and, and wrestle with. Uh, our, our successes have posed new challenges for us because we saved Soviet Jews, Ethiopian Jews, Yemeni Jews, Iranian Jews, Iraqi Jews, all of the challenges that our generation took on, these pure causes that were able to mobilize people across all boundaries and not just become institutionalized, but become uh, movements as Soviet Jewry was, that uh, as I often say, they saved more of our children than we saved of theirs. How many young people identified and became close to the community and older people as well. It was a movement that engulfed people's whole lives. I know people who lost their jobs because they were spending so much time on, on Soviet Jewry and working for the release of Soviet Jews, which to me was the enactment of never again. It was in translating the words into deeds that we were not going to stand by when a Jewish community was in danger. And uh, certainly the Six Day War was a major impetus for it. And, uh, you know, many people were skeptical. When it came to New York, I was teaching at the University of Pennsylvania and doing my doctorate and working for the community there. And people said, why would you do that? Soviet Jews will never be free. Now we look back and you see, as you said, rightly, the tremendous victory 
that was achieved, that we took on a prison that spanned two continents and a handful of Jews there really made perestroika possible. They made Glasnost possible by, by their actions and taking on this mammoth uh, Soviet Union. And I think today we need to find things that inspire. And I like, frankly, when it's a positive motivation, anti-Semitism today is coming as close as anything to mobilizing the community and getting all people to finally work together and to you know, make common cause. But I want it to be for positive reasons. I want it to be for, you know, that people identify with Israel and identify with the amazing things of Israel. And when you ask about when's the last time they had a victory, I think every day, every hour is a victory for Israel, given the challenges that it faces, the enemies that it has overcome, the progress that it has made, and, but we have to instill that somehow in young people, that they not take Israel for granted, that they feel the excitement I know you feel and I feel and people of our generation still do, but diminishes with the subsequent generations. So, but in, in your role in the conference, which, uh, you know, does so much, we'll talk about that in a moment, but so much that gets done is behind closed doors. I mean, that's really the strength of the conference. So when you look back upon your career, what kind of victories did you have behind closed doors that you could discuss that? I understand there are things that can't be discussed at this time, but things that you could think about that, you know, got done and you could look back and say, well, we achieved, we achieved our goals because of how we did this thing diplomatically. Right. So you're absolutely right. I do believe, contrary to many others and have been criticized sometimes, that you're much more effective by accomplishing and doing and let people see what you've done rather than what you say you do. And it's easy to have press releases and to put out the declarations, but the question is what's behind it. And the most important thing I found in dealing with leaders around the world, hostile and friendly in the Arab world, and as you know, we started there 30 years ago, we went to Qatar, we went to, to the Gulf when everybody thought it was crazy. And in Morocco 40 years ago, that credibility is the most important thing with leaders that they know you can trust you, and that's true of presidents of the United States as well. They know you don't leak, you know that you're not what that you have a conversation, it remains there. And sometimes it is tempting because you want to get a headline, you want to get recognition. But you have to look at this in the long term of what's really important. What's important is your ability to deliver on the needs of the Jewish people and the Jewish state and to have the entree which comes from trust and a sense of integrity in dealing with the institutions and, and communal operatives about, on the part of, of leaders. So that is why I opted, and we didn't have a PR person uh, during my years at the conference or before I, 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 I wanted uh, that not to become the objective. That is sometimes necessary and it's sometimes important to have a release out and it's important to create a record so the community knows what you did or you wanna reward or criticize somebody for their actions. But I think for the long run, it's really uh, establishing credibility and retaining the unity of the community. So we're not in competition with our member organizations. We try to enhance what they do as they enhance the work and make possible work of, of the conference of any umbrella organization. And I think the, you raised another very fundamental question. It's, an, it's a philosophy about how communal life should operate and what the priorities should be. I know the needs for fundraising and all the things that, that organizations have, and I'm not, I'm not being critical, but uh, I'm trying to explain at least how we chose to approach our work. 
Right. No, no. And I think it's been very effective. Look, I've seen it myself, so I, I know it works. But you're right. It's uh, People want to see uh, headlines. They want to see press releases. And we all know there are organizations that we know that never fail every day. Just like there's a Dafyomi, there's a press, <laughs> there's a press Yomi. No matter what, no matter what's going on. But can I? I I, I think I didn't answer your question, uh, though the original part of it. Um, so one of the victories I'll give you an example is the Iran thirteen. Remember when the thirteen Jews were arrested in Iran, and we later found out that three were marked for death sentences, ten for long prison terms, and every year since the revolution in seventy nine, the Iranians killed at least one Jew to send a message to the community. It started with Alganian in seventy nine. And every year, one or two Jews were, were arrested and killed. This is the first time we found out before the trial, before they could do anything. And because obviously Israel couldn't do it, I was charged and we mobilized 66 countries, including most of the Arab and Muslim countries who intervened with the Iranian government. I, I negotiated with the leaders. I had dinner in Zarif's home. I couldn't eat anything, but I was there. And I was organizing the demonstrations outside while I was negotiating inside. And, and we reached an understanding, and I lived up to my end, which then I felt was essential because who knows in the future when you need to be able to have access. And I still hear feedback from them periodically, and certainly with the people we helped inside Iran. And that's one example. I mean, the, the, when we got the Bashawitz mission that made possible the rescue of Ethiopian Jews and negotiations with the president, vice president for Syrian Jews and getting them Oppressed. We never discussed it publicly. Shoshana Carden and I went to the White House and they had given us a certain date, deadline, and we told them, yes, that deadline was yesterday and you didn't meet it. And they snapped to it and they did it. So many of the things that have been accomplished and because they need to get credit, the elective officials should get credit, not us, because that's the incentive for them to do more and to that's the reward that they get for it. Well, that's great. See, that means that's a good, that's a great example that people don't know it. But I know it, and I, that's why I wanted it to come out on the program. I think, I, think, I think it's important. So let's get back to the conference for a moment. When you mentioned the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations, a mouthful, most people go, what is that? But then when you mentioned Malcolm Holmline, it was, of course. Why do you think that is, that people, is it just that you were the face for so long, you were this charismatic figure, and because of that, people never knew what the organization was? They just knew Malcolm Holmline. Is that, I mean... That's what I think. I'm not sure. What do you think? No, I think people knew the conference, but but as an institution, we didn't promote it on an organizational basis because we didn't want to be in competition with our member organizations. They wanted to get visibility. It, it is a difficult thing to head an umbrella group. And I devoted my whole career for more than 50 years running umbrella organizations because I really believe in Claudius Rowe. I believe in the unity of the Jewish people and coming together and putting aside not dismissing differences, but recognizing and putting them in a context where we can discuss them with civility, but recognize that what we have in common far outweighs our differences. And that umbrella organizations, bringing people around the table enables you to strengthen that unity, which is the core of our strength. Achdut has been the one precondition, the unity that God set for every great miracle that happened to the Jewish people from when we stood at Mount Sinai to the rescue of Russian Jews and Ethiopian Jews and all of the others. So, uh, and of course, you know, there has to be a face to it. I give the continuity, but we promoted each chairman and the chairman people of the conference, whether it was Mort Zuckerman or, or Morris Abram or Ronald Lauder, all of them, they became well-known and, and household names as well, but they changed every two years. So people 
don't necessarily adjust to that. And so I think that it's it's incidental that it, my name, but it was, uh, you know, when you stick around long enough, it happens. So, you know, it's interesting because I actually had this down on my list as a, uh, something I wanted to bring up later, but I'm going to bring it up now, which is really all the different cheer people uh, who during my like 25 years now in the conference, of course, we see many, but I do want it because this is my program and, and it would be remiss on my part if I didn't bring up one because I, he was a good friend of mine, but he was your, you did Richard Stone, who was the chairman of the conference and such a close friend. Maybe you could tell everybody a little bit about Richard and who he was. What an incredible person. And I just think it's the right thing to do since you and I are having this conversation, you know, when people are going to listen to it. A hundred percent. And I welcome the opportunity. I think of him every day. So many times still uh, may sound ridiculous, but I pick up the phone, not thinking because something was happening and I needed to consult or to talk to him. And we talked to every day, sometimes more than once. He was a unique individual. He, he was brilliant, so committed. And he did not have the ego investment in what he did. You, you knew him from his work at the OU, his leadership roles, certainly head of the Soviet jury, and as of the conference of presidents and met so many things. When I came to, it was building the JCRC and later Soviet jury, and first Soviet jury, I set about and I made a list of the people that I wanted to get involved, people who I knew about and people I had heard about. And he was one of them way back then. And he was a lot younger, but he became part of not only the conference, but of my life. And, you know, his intelligence, his own background. You know, he knew he had so many contacts, but growing up in New Orleans, he had a different perspective, which I think is beneficial when people come from out of New York. You know, you have a sort of less myopic view of the world than New Yorkers do. And he, you know, when he took on anything, he started doing Yafyomi. He finished the whole Yafyomi. He would sit on the plane with a Gemara, no matter where we were in the world. And we all saw him as well on the trips. Used to see him sitting there in the corner, and he would—he was so devoted to the things that he undertook, his family, to the, his friends. There was nobody better. Yeah, no, he was—he was quite a person, someone who I really respected and admired so much from all the years at the OU and just the friendship. But I, I really wanted to just mention his name because we talk about the different chairman and they were, they were all interesting people. I have to, I mean, uh, you knew them better than I did, but I, I thought it was fun, like every two years getting to know somebody. Uh, but when you, when you started the conference, did you think you're going to be there for so long? You know, in all my career, I, I life, I never looked for a job. Everything just happened. That day I was offered the day that my predecessor passed away suddenly, he died giving a speech. I was offered the job to head the UJA Federation in New York. And I was faced with this dilemma because I had done a lot of work with, with the conference. I organized the rally when Arafat came. I did, I organized certain conferences and things for the president's conference when we, you know, came out with uh, Jackson Bannock and we did the rally for against the uh, exit tax. So I did it for the president's conference from the JCRC and through our mutual friend, Rabbi Israel Miller was the chairman. And I never would have said no to him anyway, but I wouldn't say no to, to any of it because we had the capacity to deliver to people, to organize. And the president's conference stamp is and was always very small. So, you know, the uh, just comment about the variety of people that served in the role of chair just in my time. We had a Sparty, Leon Levy, we had 
Morris Abram, who was a, a statesman par excellence, served four presidents of the United States, uh, somebody like Mort and Ronald Lauder, Jimmy Tisch. I don't want to go through old names because then I leave out some, and most recently Arthur, you know, and, and Steve Greenberg, and uh, June, and, and and now Diane Loeb. And, I mean, such an array of people. No two were alike in any way. And they came from every background. You had reformed conservative Orthodox and majority reform, I would say, or affiliated with reformed synagogues, but all sharing that common commitment to, to, to the Jewish community and motivated by it. And I tell people, it was my job to adjust to them, not theirs to adjust to us. And each one's leadership style, as you said, it made it more interesting that you don't have, you bring a new life, new views, new visions to the conference. And it's a partnership with the executive and the, and I mean, the staff and chairperson. And because we only have two officers elected, the chairman and myself and the executive, you know, it really is a day-to-day -day certain and sometimes hour-by-hour -hour relationship. And you think about the array of people, no community has produced a better group than that, that we can be so proud of the kind of people who took two years of their lives and devoted it to this, because it does mean that kind of a commitment and putting their businesses and everything else on the side. So I know it's easy to criticize leadership. It's easy for people to sit on the sidelines, but get involved if you want to make a difference. You no, know, I, I think you're absolutely right. And to me, uh, you know, getting to meet all these people and getting to know them, I never would have known them otherwise. And I became friends with them. And you're right. We're, you know, we realized that there weren't that many differences. We were, we were together. We really cared about Israel. We cared about the Jewish people. And that was our common bond. And I think it's, a, it's something that we've lost. But, you know, but I don't think people understand also that not only did you deal with these different Shirem people, but... In all the organizations, 53 different organizations, every year, every two years, there was someone else stepping up to the plate. Some of them were characters. Some of them were, you know, interesting people. <laughs> but you had to deal with not just the cheers, but all the other organizations. So you got to see every, you got to see the entire spectrum of Jewish leadership over the last 50 years. Now, I want to ask you this question. Now, so you've seen it all. Do you think the, the quality of the people today are the same as before, better, different? What do you think? It is different, I think, in, in some respects, you know, and the, the era we live in is different. The, the general climate, political climate, the divisiveness in society, the rise of anti-Semitism reflective of, of the tensions that, and, the, and it, that impact our agenda. But I think that, that we still retained the quality and the commitment and the fact that people vie for the post, knowing that it's it's going to cost them a lot of money that, that those two years and and the time that they have to commit to it and the you know the burden that they have to that they bear, but they do it willingly, even more than willingly, because they care. And that's the bottom line: is that what we have in common, far away from our differences. The problem is that all the emphasis is always on what the differentiates us. Where do, where do we oppose? The media only wants to know a fight in the Jewish community. If it doesn't exist, they'll create one. But as you know, on 95% of the issues, we can get a consensus of the member organizations. You have to work at it. You have to have the what I call the Kishka factor. You, you know when you have consensus and you know when you don't. It should never come to a vote. As you know, the conference tries never to have a vote because that already divides people. So uh, I, I think we have we can still be very proud of the leadership that we and we have to do more to get young people to understand. And that's why I've been doing these kind of podcasts to give a message to young people that you can make a difference. And it's not where you come from in your wealth or whatever. It depends on your on what you're ready to do. And are you ready to take on responsibility 
and to play a role. Everybody can make a difference. I didn't come from a wealthy family or anything. It's just, I think God wants us to do this. I think he enables us to do it if we listen to, to the call and respond. No, no, I agree with you about that. And uh, so after all those years, how hard was it to step down? Well, I didn't step down. I stepped aside because I really felt, <laughs> but I really felt that you always should leave a job a day before anybody thinks you should. And I really believed that I wanted to be able to play a role in the succession process. I didn't make decision. We appointed a committee. They, they interviewed many people. But I see many times where succession in Jewish organizations lead to, to very negative results and tensions and stuff. And I wanted to be able to help and to phase in and phase, phase out of a CEO. But I remember and still remain vice chairman of the conference. I'm involved there every day although I've taken on other responsibilities as well from my volunteer work. I'm president of the Great Synagogue of Jerusalem, I'm president of many other things. I still work 18-hour days. I think my contract with the, with the Kaddish Baruch Hu was that as long as he gives me the energy and the ability to do it, I will try to live up to my end. And I've taken on other organizational responsibilities. So it was not something that you make a snap decision but I decided after our mission, very successful mission to Saudi Arabia and to Israel to show people that I'm not stepping down because I'm physically not able. I still outrun all the presidents and executives and work longer hours and even today probably than most. But I did it and, and I wanted to send a message to others that you got to have an orderly transition. We don't invest all this blood, sweat and tears to see it dissipate or become endangered. So that was why I did it, and I have no regrets. Right. No, when I said I'm sorry, I said step down. It's just that obviously you stepped aside and you're still there, but you know, little by little, you're kind of moving away slowly. It, it has right. been a, it's and been a process. And taking on new things. Right. And COVID came along, and uh, you know that for you was 100%. you know, and I would be on these calls in COVID and see you in your house in in Brooklyn. I'd go, oh my God, this man has never been home so much in his life. That must have been. That's what my wife says. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about Malcolm Homeline post-conference. I mean, I, everyone wants to know exactly what you're doing and what are things are you getting involved in. And because whatever you're involved in, people want to get involved in because they know you have your, you know, you know what's going on. You have your eye on the ball. So let's talk about now Malcolm Homeline. What are you doing? What are you getting involved in? So I have two different tracks in my life. I have the um, the voluntary work, as I said, President of Great Synagogue, Itabrut, I'm on the boards of about 50 organizations. I try to contribute to where, where I can to all of them and help them. And I'm helping many other projects uh, on a volunteer basis uh, that I care about and have cared about uh, over the years, both in Israel and in, in the U.S. Uh, I'm also uh, doing consulting work and I'm uh, working with, um, uh, I work with a foundation, a major foundation that is doing amazing things in Israel and here. Uh, and but most of all, I I'm working on the next phase of the Abraham Accords, new all new thrust that I won't detail here. But it's it's working with the U.S. government, with the governments in the region, governments in Central Asia, and also with Muslim countries, and building on the work that I did for the last decades, for many decades. Uh, in the region, because we have to keep this dynamic alive. We have to keep the process alive. If we don't expand it, it's going to start to shrivel. And you see 
those who, who talk about it in those terms, and it's not true. There's great opportunities, not just in Saudi Arabia, but many other countries. And, you know, just as an individual doing this and getting, I've been meeting with the presidents in those countries, and I hope to be able to start bringing high-level delegations to of people who can help. We have to strengthen the ties within the societies. So I'm more interested in the Chamber of Commerce than the foreign ministry to help build those relations, to create facts on the ground. And I'm telling you, you wouldn't believe the countries that have approached me and saying that they're interested in this. Then I'm working with some very creative people on new approaches on anti-Semitism, but you know, not talking, but doing, and we have some really exciting prospects. I'm also working on an early warning system to bring together all of the Jewish the country, the countries and Jewish communities that have full-time operations so that we know that anti-Semitism goes country to country and messages transport and the internet. So we are, I'm working in, uh, on that. And there's a two of, of uh, about a half a dozen such initiatives that I am I'm working on right now. Well, wow. so let's talk about anti-Semitism. So uh, I know you. we've spoken about this privately, but is it going to be something that other people are going to get involved in? Or is, it, is this going to be the Malcolm Homeline show solely? Or is this going to be an organization that you're going to put together? Or just doing this because you have all the contacts? No, it's, it is going to be. It is established. It involves academic institutions. It involves uh, law enforcement people. It involves others. It, will be, it is a broader initiative. But also, I want to try to create a unified movement like we did on Soviet Jury, which to and include everybody I need. We need the leadership to be there. That's the only way we're going to fight this. We're spending now well into the nine figures on fighting anti-Semitism. And we've won battles, but we're losing the war. We need to make this a concerted, common effort where everybody can do their part, but, that, but it has to be and in, like an orchestra with each player playing its own instrument, but the music comes when everybody comes together. And I believe that that uh, anti-Semitism requires all the resources. It's it's a huge challenge. We're facing state sponsors of anti-Semitism, all the hate groups, left, right, minority, Muslim. And most of all, I think it's important for us to shift the onus to the non-Jewish community, that we act as if we're the perpetrators. We take responsibility for it. We're the victims. And it's not going to work until the non-Jewish world, and that means entertainers, academia, po politics, judiciary, everybody is forced to. And I think the White House statement was important in that regard because they said to every agency of government, you find out what you can contribute to the war on anti-Semitism. You have to decide. I have some reservations about the plan, but I think the message is very important coming from the president. And I hope that we can replicate the world conference that we did on Soviet jury in 1874, I think in 82, uh, Begin led one, Golda the other, to do that on, on anti-Semitism. And I've tested it with world leaders. And frankly, I've gotten a great response to it. I think they understand what this means. No, I agree with you. I think everybody has to have their role, but we have to put it together. Everybody has to know they're a player. And if they're a player, I mean, I know that even like at Benet Zion, uh, we've shifted now. We've, we're doing so many other things in the anti-Semitism, but really media dealing with what we call the Gen Z 
population. That's that's our strength. We know how to deal. We know how to deal with influencers. We we know how to do that well. But someone else should do something else. I mean, if we could put it together, I I hope and pray that that's going to work because that's what we need. We're smart people. We have money, but we have to use it wisely in this particular battle. So I'm glad you're getting involved, and hopefully, people who are listening going to find out what could I do to help. And organizations could say. Let me be a part of it. So God willing, we'll make that work. You know, look, I could go on and talk to you all day and all night, obviously, because, you know, you're just such an interesting person. You've done you've done so much. But one or two, one or, I just wanted to talk about one or two other things. I don't think people know that you've got a great sense of humor. You know, people, you're a very serious person. You're, you're so intellectual. You know so much. But people don't understand that part of your success, I believe, is your sense of humor because I've been with you in situations that were very, very tense, and you were able to diffuse it with a a, a, a word, a quip, a, a joke, or something. Could you could you could you think of one or two examples of maybe where you use that to to break the ice? I would tell you that it's a natural thing. It's not something you plan. But it, I have very few gifts. I can't draw. I can't dance. I can't sing. I can't play an instrument. The, very few things that a Baruch Hu gave me. But one is that he gave me a, a quick wit, a, a humor, and you have to use it carefully. You can't do insulting things and you have to know when to do it or not. But it is true that even with the worst dictators, with uh, Putin or or uh, um, the old Aliyev and with the leaders around the world and Erdogan, I broke the ice because sometimes if you get somebody to laugh, they put down their defenses. They begin to to relate to you in in a different way, and it's not the particular examples as much as it is the idea that that human beings share common nature. You know, he was growl faced, and he started to to laugh at the things that I said. And all of a sudden, his hand was on mine, and his staff thought we were dead. I'm telling you, they they said they told me afterwards they never saw him laugh. And at the end of the meeting, uh, he, he first of all I had we had seen him earlier today, and everybody warned me about it. And he said, "You come in alone first, and I did. And then we had a small meeting. At the end, he turned to me and said, "You're having dinner at my home tonight." I said, "Oh no, no, we have arrangements." And and he just stared at me and he said, "You're having dinner at my home tonight." So we went. There was no arguing that. And at the end of the dinner. All of a sudden, he reverted back to that stern face, and he stood up, and he said, "Follow me." He didn't speak English during the dinner, and you know I couldn't eat anything, so the whole time I'm mushing stuff on the plate because I couldn't. There wasn't a single thing we could eat, and we walked down this hallway, and he opens the door, and I look down; it's pitch black in the basement, and he said, "Go down, please." I said, "No, I don't think so." You know. <laughs> I said, uh oh, and everybody is looking at me and I'm looking at that. And he, and he just waited holding the door. So I walked down and it was totally dark. And I see in the distance a little light and he leads us towards that. And I figured there was gallows there and they were just, you know, prepared for us. And then he op- he, op- <laughs> he opens the door and it's a man cave with fake stalactites and stalactites, all those things, you know, hanging from the ceiling. And he served us an aperitif, a post-dinner. That was the highest covet he could give, honor that he gave people, guess, was to invite them to his thing and, and to continue it. And I, I'm telling you, there are 
you know, when Putin came into the meeting and he looked at me, he said, you know, for you, I kept the generals waiting. I said, what generals? There were no generals outside. When he came out, the head of General Motors and General Electric were sitting waiting for the next meeting with him. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you're right. Human nature is, is, is universal, generally. Everybody has their own characteristics. I'm not saying it works with everybody, but if you if you show that you're genuine and and you can and if you're a sincere advocate for your cause and if they sense that it already breaks down so much of of the differences i was i was honored at the world conference of religious leaders in kazakhstan and i didn't know i was going to be but i was seated the pope was there the head of alazar the foreign minister of pakistan me and the ayatollah from iran <laughs> i was seated between them and he wouldn't talk to me, didn't look at me. And then when he came back from the break, I just looked at him quickly and I said, did you study in Qum? And he was caught off guard. I said, Qum, you know Qum? Qum is the religious center where they go and study it. And I said, you know, we have a similar system with yeshivas and we study. And he said, I was 20 years in Qum. And he, then he started telling me that he lives across the street from the synagogue in Tehran. And all of a sudden, it was a whole different relationship. And then as soon as the people came in, he just sat down again because he realized it was all being televised. So I don't know how the late Ayatollah is doing, but uh, I, I hope he survived it. <laughs> no, but that's really it's really it's really unbelievable. Anyway, it, it's incredible. I want to end it. I I have this thing, Malcolm. I call it the lightning round. I'm just going to ask you some quick questions. Give me the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay, you ready? Here we go. This is hard for you, I know. Who's the greatest person you ever met? I just want to say that that really is an unfair question because I met oh, so many of the great leaders, the 50, well, no, but the Lubav, from the Lubavitcher Rebbe to Scoop Jackson, each one had a different influence on my life. The Belzer Rebbe now, people of, from every walk of life, Morris Abrams, the chair people of the conference, many of them so influenced me and uh, with him, we developed these close relationships, the chair people, JCRC. I've had the privilege to work with the best. I, I've known every president. I've had intimate discussions with them and, and with other leaders. So uh, I would have to say that it's an encyclopedia. Is there anyone who you'd like to meet who you haven't met? Oh, that's a really good question. Is there anybody I would like to meet that I haven't met? My great-great-grandchildren. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. What about if you could meet anyone in history, who would you want to meet? Moshe Rabbeinu. Okay, I agree with you about that. Now, I know this is a tough question for you because you've heard everybody, but who's the best speaker you ever heard? Uh, recently, I think Rabbi Sachs was certainly one of the great speakers that, uh, that I remember. But Begin was a, a great orator. You know, I've heard, yeah, again, I've been privileged to listen to, to the great minds of our time. But, uh, you know, it's also the personality, not just the intellect of the people. What about the most intimidating person you ever met? I have to say the the Iranian officials I negotiated with. Okay, okay, I hear you. Now I know I know people because I, I know how much you love to learn, and uh, you you know every I have to say that anytime I come across a a beautiful Devar Torah, right away I'm always thinking of you and sending it because I know how much you appreciate it. But I uh, do. What about your favorite safer? Do you have a favorite safer that you love you love to look at? I do. Uh, anything by Shimshon or Fall Hirsch. And as a Yeki, I have to say, I, I have to put that amongst the, the first requirements. And what about your favorite Chag? Anyone I can spend with my family. So Pesach, we all come together. Sukkot, we come together. The, that is really, to me, the, the ultimate. 
Is there any place you'd like to go that you haven't been yet? India. India. Oh, really? Okay, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Anyway, listen, uh, to my listening audience, this has been a treat. I uh, hope you, once you listen to the podcast, tell your friends to listen to it also. Malcolm, it has been absolutely a pleasure and a delight and a, and a privilege for me to have you on my podcast and on Unrestricted. Good luck to you. Good health for the for, the, for, for your family, for the Claudia Israel. We certainly need your vision and your, and, your, and, your, and your wisdom. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. And I, I can't let this close without thanking you for devoting all the time you have to so many of the organizations and particularly to the conference and being on our executive and not just playing uh, you know, a role of sitting in the chair, but you've really been an active leader in so many things. And it's such a pleasure to travel with you and be with you. You share the sense of humor, <laughs> which is a great thing. Not everybody understood us uh, all the time, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but but your wife was able to, to interpret when they couldn't. And uh, I just want to really thank you for being a great friend. Thank you so much, Malcolm. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to Unrestricted, hosted by Steve Savisky. The show was produced and edited by Gilad Brownstein and is a production of B'nai Zion.